I have to say a few things at the risk of running over a couple of minutes and being scolded by the senior pastor. I have read a few biographies about D.L. Moody. If you haven't read any, you've got to. It's an incredible time for the church, and God really used Moody. But one of the things that was integral to Moody's ministry was that he had a guy named Ira Sankey who sang before he would preach. And I have to tell you, I, I read that, and I always thought, that's great, because I love Christian music. But it never hit me until I listened to Taylor sing before we hear a message of how God could really use that, because most of the songs she sings brings me to tears. <laughs> so I thank the Lord for, for her ministry. Um, the practicing what I've preached, I want to remember this morning that God is with us, and that's a wonderful thing. Along the same lines, I know I speak for my wife, I cannot tell you how glad I am to be here and be a part of this assembly. You people are absolutely wonderful. God's work is obvious in your lives and it's affected me in a wonderful way and I, I really appreciate it. And I forgot the other thing I was gonna tell you. <laughs> That's okay, emotion does that sometimes, doesn't it? If you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. What would you say to a person who, who came up to you and said, I know you're a Christian. How can I have eternal life? That's a question we'd love to hear from people, isn't it? <laughs> I wish I'd asked that question before I was saved. How would we answer that? Many of us would quickly say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And that's true. Some might want them to pray the sinner's prayer. Some people would go through the four spiritual laws. Some might want to try to get them to make a decision for Christ. Well, Jesus gets this, asked this question in verse 16. I'm going to move down to verse 16. I'm just going to read the first few words, though. It says, Now behold, one came. And I'd like to just draw from the other Gospels to fill the picture in of who this one is. We find from the other Gospels that this is a young man. And he's also a rich man. And he's also some kind of ruler. Rich means he can do a lot of what he wants to do, right? Isn't that our common observation or conclusion about rich people is they have money, they can do anything they want? He's young, which means he doesn't have hindrances like some of us who are older, so he can do what he wants. He's a ruler, which means he has power. So here's a guy who has what most people wants, right? want, right? Youth, wealth, power. Most people in our lifetimes, we only get one or two of these, right? Most of us want money because we think it's going to be the answer to everything. This young man, he's got it all, just like Solomon, but he's missing one thing, and he knows it. Finish the verse. It says, 
And he said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He doesn't have eternal life. He's got three out of four things, which he thinks the most important. As I prepare this, I thought of the young people who, who are listening to this message, and I think there's a, a, a good lesson to look at as we think about him. And I'm, I'm not picking on people who are young. I was once young too, believe it or not, and uh, I wanted the same things. But I, I observed that this young man, if I thought about, if I had all the things he did when I was younger, if I had that kind of power and riches, I'd be out pursuing whatever I could with it, whatever pleasures I wanted. But instead, he's here asking Jesus about how to obtain eternal life. Something that's really uncommon amongst young people, unfortunately. We're very distracted when we're young. So why in the world would he be interested in eternal life when he's got so much going for him already, right? Can't that wait until he's older? Yeah, with all he has, when does he have time to think about eternal life? So verse 17, so he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Eternal life. So we conclude that what he wants is good, right? Can you think of anything more valuable than eternal life? The other good thing is that he's come to one who is good. His problem, though, is he doesn't realize how good this one really is. And he doesn't realize what true goodness is like. So Jesus asked him, well, you know, why do you call me good? There's only one who's good. When we say God is good, we mean he's inherently good, intrinsically good. He can only do good. He cannot do wrong. He cannot be bad. Sometimes we call other people good, don't we? Sometimes we call ourselves good. But there's a problem with that. It's true that you and I can do good things, isn't it? It's not true that we always do good things. And therefore, we cannot call ourselves good like you call God good. So this word good is too casually used. It really should only be used of God. If this guy was really thinking about what he was saying, what he was calling Jesus, he would realize, realize right away that God is the only good one, which implies the rest of us are not good, which is a clue to why he does not have eternal life. In addition, in calling Jesus good teacher, he's also saying that Jesus is God, the only one who's good. Well, we know he's come to the right person to ask the question, don't we? <clears throat> he's looking for one thing to do in order to have eternal life. So does Jesus ask him to pray a prayer or agree to the four spiritual laws? Does he ask him to make a decision for him? Does he tell him that he's going to die for him? No, he doesn't. Very interesting. 
Verse 17, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He responds by saying, which ones? Anybody see a problem with that question? <laughs> Is that like asking the police officer, which traffic laws do I have to keep? Or the IRS, which tax laws do I have to keep? Jesus could have given him a hard time for that, but he doesn't. He just simply says in verse 18, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man says to him in verse 20, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? You believe he kept all those commandments? Jesus didn't even list all of them, did he? Why do you think he didn't keep them? Why do so many people think that they live a good life? Before I was, before I was saved, that's exactly what I thought. The day the guy, a guy came up and asked me about my eternal destiny, I thought I was in pretty good shape. Why do we always think we're good enough? That's well, because we use the wrong standard. We do not understand what God has said. You consider the Ten Commandments, what they end up becoming for most people is the Ten Suggestions or Ten Pieces of Good Advice to Strive After for. But you have to remember the word commandment is in there, isn't it? <clears throat> and our problem, like this young man, is that we're in darkness. But there may be some of you here today or listening that might think he, he did keep those commandments. He wasn't lying. <clears throat> but watch what Jesus does. Jesus, who is God, knows everything, knew everything about this man, though he never technically really met him before. <clears throat> he puts him to the test to prove it, that he hasn't kept him, to show him the truth. And this is where the rubber meets the road. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, <clears throat> If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving. For he was one who owned much property. He went away. He went away. Where's he going to go? His only hope was right there in front of him. He gave up eternal life for property? Do you see what Jesus tried to do with him, though? He was trying to get him to see something, and he did that by using the law. And the young man didn't really like that answer, did he? But the law is very effective, <clears throat> and it's a tool that God wants to use in our lives. I know he used it in mine to help me to see. Galatians 3.24 <clears throat> says, Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law was our tutor. What does a tutor do? A tutor teaches. Do you see how the law was used by Jesus, was teaching this young man something? Romans 3.20, 
Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The law was meant to help us to see that we're sinners. <clears throat> we don't like it, but there it is. Do you want to avoid truth and live a lie? The Ten Commandments cannot be kept by a person in order to save them. And that they were never meant to be. Jesus used the law like it was supposed to be used to help this person see his sin. If I don't see my sin, I don't see any need for a Savior, do I? So because Jesus is God and he knows everything, he pinpointed this one sin of the rich young ruler. Unfortunately, he walked away, but had he not walked away, Jesus could have taken it further. And I'm going to role play a little bit here using myself only and using the law. So you're talking to somebody about their need to be saved. They don't see it. I didn't see it. But you could do this. You could say, have you ever told a lie? Uh, yeah, I've lied. What does that make you then? A liar. Have you ever taken something that doesn't belong to you? Yeah, I've, I've done that too. <clears throat> what does that make you? A thief. Now, I've, I've used these questions before, and I have people, they want to get sidetracked. and say, What about white lies? Those are okay, right? I've actually had people say, well, I've never lied. I've had some people, fortunately not many, say, I've told more lies than I could possibly remember. And I've also had people say they've never taken anything, ever. But they have. And it's not just things, either. It could be time, couldn't it? Sometimes we rob our employers of time. Have you ever committed adultery? Well, there might be some who might be able to say they've never actually done this, although in the culture today it's becoming less and less. But Jesus says, if you lust after another person, you've committed adultery in your heart. Then I'm guilty of adultery. What does that make you then? An adulterer. Have you ever committed murder? Again, some might say, they never actually done this. But we all know what Jesus says, right? You're angry with your brother. You've committed murder in your heart, huh? and I'm guilty of murder. And I don't know how many times I've done it. What does that make you then? A murderer. In talking to some people, they like to justify their behavior by saying, you know, I'm not perfect, but God knows my heart. You've probably heard that before. I think I've probably said it before, but I've heard it plenty of times. Therein lies the problem, though, because he really does know your heart. <laughs> and it's not pretty. We have to realize that in this world, when we break man's laws, we commit a crime and there's man's justice that has to be applied, right? What we don't realize is that there is a greater law and a greater judge. And that usually the laws we break, they start right here. And that's when God's law is broken, and that's why it's so critical. Because he can see and does know everything. 
And I can't imagine when he looks down the world and knows what everybody's thinking and doing. I'm, I'm glad he's God. Have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Sure have. Who hasn't? What does that make you then? A blasphemer. So then, by your own admission, you're a liar, a thief, an adulterer, you're a murderer and a blasphemer. Or to put it succinctly, you're a lying, thieving, adulterous, murderous blasphemer. Gulp. We learn something through the law, don't we? It teaches us something, doesn't it? By explaining what each law means, it, if you're not seeing it, but you should, we're all lawbreakers. We've all broken the law. In the court of God, we're, we're all criminals, if truth be told. And when you stand before God, there will be no plea to enter. Because in his court, it will be obvious to you, to him, and anybody else present that you're guilty. There'll be no need for a jury or a presentation of evidence. And if we go through and look at the rest of the commandments, I'm sure you can see what the conclusion is. You, you, you can see it right away. I see people's head nodding. Yeah, we, we've broken them all. And it's funny because when we get talk about spiritual things with people, I know it was true with me, when you first come up to a person to ask them about this, the automatic thing is, is that we think, well, I'm doing pretty good, and when I get there, God's going to weigh out my good and my bad, and my good's going to override, and I'm going to be okay and be accepted into heaven. But we've broken all these commandments. Why do we think good things we think we do will erase the bad? Does it make sense to you trying to do good things in light of all the things we've done doesn't do any good? It wouldn't in a real courtroom, where there's real justice, of course. Taking a macro look a little bit at the world, the world statistics on murder says that there, in the world there is a murder a minute. A murder every 60 seconds. If you were God and you looked down on a world where the crimes are so continuously committed and there's so many of them that they can they cite it by how many are committed every second, what would you do with a world like that? Individually and corporately, we, we the human race are hard criminals in the courtroom of God. We don't see ourselves that way, but it's not important how we see ourselves, is it? It's important how God sees it. And his standard's way, way different than ours. When God gave the law to the Israelites, do you remember their response? They said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. What should they have said? Lord, if that's the requirements for heaven, I'm sunk. If you don't find some way to be merciful to me, I'm a goner. And it's what the rich young ruler should have said. He, sh he should have stayed there and listened, but instead he walked away. The reason God gave us a law is because we need to understand our true condition. You know, he didn't have to do that. 
He's very patient and merciful with us. Even though we sit there and we think we're good, because what we do often is we look at the person next to us who's less than us, and that makes us feel like we are good, right? But then you take a look at the law and you realize, well, neither one of us is good. The law says something about God, too. You know, he never breaks any of it. He's that good. It would be a whole other message to talk about taking people like us and thinking about us being in heaven with somebody like him. Why do people avoid him then if he's so good? Well, it's because of our sin. We're not like him. And we don't seem to understand that. What we want is bad and not what is perfect, but we should. That just shows you how bad off we really are. If you are here today and you're like this young man and you want eternal life, then don't walk away. There is hope, but it's not what you think. A lot of us, and some of you still, are involved in what are, are religions that are not scriptural. And so you think like this young ruler here. And what you need to do is think like God thinks. So if you're tracking with me, though, you, think, you see there's a big problem, or you should see it. I'm going to explain it if you don't. <clears throat> if I'm a sinner and I've broken God's laws, there are two questions I need to wrestle with. The first one is, what is the punishment for breaking God's laws? The opposite of eternal life is eternal death. And it's a punishment that is in a place called hell. Even though some religious people and some others deny that it exists. Just remember, just because they don't want to believe it doesn't mean it's not true. How would you know whether it was true or not? You have to listen to someone who knows. The Lord Jesus is the only one I know who knows the facts about that. Well, and then we have many people who don't believe that a loving God would send people to hell. And this is because they don't see their sin correctly like we just did, or at least I hope you did. In addition, when we consider the place of hell, we learn something about God that we haven't considered, and we often do not consider about how he really feels about something. Religious people are always talking about what God's about the way things ought to be done, but they don't, they don't say, well, God says this and God says that. They don't consider him at all. If God considers hell as a right punishment for sin, then what does that tell you about how he views sin? It's that bad. And like it or not, he hates it. And it should make sense if you think about it, but we don't. There's nothing wrong with a loving God hating something that's wrong. Look what it's done to us. Just go read our history books. Look at the today's newspaper. And what you see are the effects of our sin. Of course he hates it, and we should too. Well, we hate some of it, don't we? We don't want to hate all of it, do we? Because we do some of it, because we want to. 
We're so familiar with sin. It's so common to us, just like breathing. But what you've got to understand is that it's not common at all for God. It's not something he can tolerate at all. It's foreign to him. It's ruined what he's created. And he has a right to do what should be done. The second question I need to wrestle with then is, it has to do with his mercy or his love. We have to understand this. God cannot just say, oh, I forgive you and pretend like it ever happened. Are you kidding me? If you look around, look in your own life and your own heart, I don't, I don't want to remember some things that I have done. <laughs> and when I look around at the world around me, I just see more of it. He's not just going to sweep that under the carpet. He can't. You wouldn't do it if you were the judge. If one of our courtroom judges let criminals go just like that, we would call that judge unjust, wouldn't we? People would be outraged that justice wasn't done. In fact, it's happening, isn't it? It has happened, and it's probably going to happen again, and we're going to be outraged by it. You want a loving God, but I'm here to tell you that you want a just God, too. You must understand that in order for God to be God, all of what he is has to be in harmony. It can't be off. You know, sometimes we look at people's personalities, and I don't want to offend anybody here, uh, but we tend to look at people who are very disciplined. They tend not to be very compassionate, huh? And we see very compassionate people, they tend not to be very disciplined, right? People are, are off balance, so to speak. But God is not. Everything he does and everything he is is absolutely perfect and, it, and operates in harmony. I was sitting at the table last weekend with my wife while she was reading the Bible and she commented that it would be a terrible thing if God, with all his power, was unjust. And the first thing that came to my mind is, in a human example of that is Hitler. There was a man who had all kinds of power, and he was unjust, and a lot of people suffered. So God does love us, but can't ignore our sin, right? That makes sense. So then how can God execute his justice and still save us at the same time? And that's a dilemma that no man-made religion has ever been able to fix. Because if you ask them, you know, if you were to die today, what would happen? They don't know. They're not sure. Because they can't solve the problem. Well, the problem with sin is the price has to be paid, right? No sin goes unpunished. That's the way it has to be. But what if, somehow, some way, God could find someone who would be willing to suffer your punishment for you? This is where a lot of religions just totally miss the boat. They don't see it right there in Scripture. But you shouldn't miss it today. You've heard the Christmas story, haven't you? 
God was born into this world as a man. And he lived, and he told his disciples before it happened that he was going to be put to death. I remember talking to a Mooney one time. She said, oh, Jesus failed his ministry, failed his mission. He got, he got put to death. No, she didn't understand. And maybe you've never understood why either that he died. You know that he died being executed on a cross. But before he physically died on the cross, you read in scripture about the three hours of darkness and you look at 1 Peter 2.24 and what does it say? He himself bore our sins on the cross. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, that ought to be the best news you've ever heard and you will ever hear. This is what we mean when we say Jesus died for your sins. It's not just some the theological or religious thing that we say. It has very powerful, practical application in everybody's life. Are you understanding what it means? It means on the cross, he suffered the punishment for all people of all time, yours, mine, anybody that comes after me, anybody that came before us, he suffered, and it's a historical fact. Let me ask you, if Jesus would suffer that much pain for you, how much does he love you then? You will never find anybody who loves you more than Jesus. You see, true Christianity is not a religion of do's and don'ts, is it? Because the reality is we couldn't. So he did what he had to do to save us. And I have to ask you today, how can you want your sin in the face of so much love? If you want him today, and you don't want your sin anymore for what he did on the cross for you only requires that you put your faith in him another word that's used a lot faith simply means trust it means there's nothing I can do to save myself I'm trusting you Lord Jesus because you paid the price for me on the cross and when you do that he saves you and that's all you need for the rest of your life. You don't even need your next breath after that. That's a wonderful thing. So two things, if you've not ever thought about it before, you see Christians wearing crosses. What does that cross represent? There's two things that cross represents that are incredible. First of all, the wrath of God was poured out on the Son of God. So you see the justice of God and you see how much he hates sin. But then he did it to save sinners like you and me. So you see the love of God. And that's why that symbol is so important to so many people for, so, for all of time. Do not be like the rich young ruler and walk away. It would be a mistake you'd regret for the rest of eternity. If you still have questions about this afterwards, there's plenty of people in this room, including myself, who would be willing to talk to you. Do not be like the rich and ruler and walk away. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you today. Lord, how can we thank you enough? 
This is an incredible thing that we're reading about. The words on the page strain under what they mean. You died for us. You suffered all of eternal hell for me and for everybody else because you love us that much. Lord, for those of us who know you, may it encourage our hearts and raise our levels of devotion to you as we live out these last days. And for those who don't know you, Lord, may they realize today who you really are and what it is you have done for them and that you personally want them for yourself. We pray in your name. Amen.